Hey everyone, before we begin today's show, we just wanted to remind you that Dr. Ben's new book, Designed to Heal, is out and available for purchase. To book Dr. Ben for speaking engagements or to purchase the book, visit drbenrall.com. That's D-R-B-E-N-R-A-L-L.com. Now, Designed to Heal. I'm Dr. Ben Rall. Do you know where the most amazing doctor lives? You may be surprised to learn that it's actually right inside of you. Yet, today's healthcare model is built on a foundation that the greatest doctor instead comes in the form of pills, potions, lotions, even surgery. So listen in, because what if the majority of what you have been told about health and healing is not only wrong, but actually harmful to you? One thing is for sure, when you work with your body and not against it, you'll begin to discover that you are in fact designed to heal. Well, hello everybody and welcome to today's episode of Design to Heal. We have a very special guest with us today. Um, those of you that have listened to the show for a long time, you know that we we take our guests very serious and we we uh, we take a lot of consideration on those people that we bring on the show because I know that you you trust this information and not that we don't want you to reflect on it and do your own research, but we like to curate in the sense that we bring high quality uh, people on the show. We also um, don't shy away from science. And um, we think that's more important than ever, especially in uh, days, this day and age where science is almost a, a, such a, a bastardized term, if you will. Um, we have a true scientist with us today who has, uh, we were talking off air here before, uh, has gotten himself in some hot water, which we take as a badge of honor, mostly because um, they don't often think some of the things that he shares are not popular or they're counterculture. Um, but he is a, a man of, of integrity and scientific scientific integrity. Many people became aware of him during the COVID time, even though he's been a professional career of this for a long time, asking great questions in science and doing science at a high level. Um, but we're going to have an interesting conversation today. So thank you and welcome to the show, Dr. James Lyon Wilder. And he says to me, a wheeler on the show, he says to me, um, well, my friends call me Jack. So if you hear me calling him Dr. Jack today, that was because he, uh, he asked that I would call him <laughs> that. So Dr. Jack, welcome to the show. Um, will you do us a favor and just uh, give us a little bit of your story, your backstory, how a lot of the world got to kind of know you outside of some of your earlier work, but give us your, your origin story, if you don't mind. Sure thing, Ben. Thanks so much. It's yeah. an honor to be on your show. You. Um, uh, I have uh, a, a rich history uh, in, in training and education. Uh, I'm a biologist by training, PhD in evolutionary biology, but during my postdoc years at Penn State University, I saw what was about to happen with high dimensional data coming. They were measuring 8,000 genes at a time from a tumor. Uh, you know, I, I knew what was going to happen given that I had trained extensively in data analysis. So I, I decided to jump ship off of evolutionary biology and not pursue a research career there, but rather go into biomedical research to help clinicians do their science better. And uh, I'm an objective scientist. I did not want to waste the opportunity. You know, it turns out a few years later, I was analyzing data sets that had 450,000 measurements from peptides and, you know, serum or cerebral, cerebral spinal fluid from patients. And so I made the right call. Uh, I ended up at the University of Pittsburgh in the Department of Pathology and at the University of Pittsburgh Cancer Institute. And news across the campus spread of my success in bringing in $27.5 million in collaborative grant funding. So everybody wanted to work with me. They gave me a research core, $650,000 a year, and a staff of four to basically crank the wheel. And we did it objectively. And the interesting thing is where we stand right now, you said, you know, science is a bastardized term. <laughs> yeah. I've written articles on how on how it's actually pseudoscience being masqueraded mm. around town as so dressed up as science, right? Well, it's, we have a man real. who is the science as well, so there's that. We never had oh. that before. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so exactly. So so we, we have this problem now, but back then, this was 2002, uh, 2003, uh, all the way up until 2012, 2014, uh, we had you know, rumblings of maybe there was something wrong with the way the biomedical science was being done. There, you know, there were problems when first in psychology, non-reproducibility, 
there was the occasional fraud. I only saw two cases of fraud at the University of Pittsburgh when I was there, and I put both of them to an end. I prevented two cases of research fraud myself. Um, Doc, can I ask you a question before you go into it? Because I'm just curious. So was this a, a, a super rewarding and rich time in your life? Like, were you really feeling like you were, were in the niche, you're doing important work, the science you feel is good science, you're overseeing it? Because, I mean, you've had, like, almost multiple lives with some of your journey. Maybe were you just yeah. thinking, hey, this is going to be my my career? Um, uh, you know, really, with a ha- were those happy years, a happy home, well-supported by your, your people, felt like you were with integrous people amongst you? Or even yeah. then, was there rumblings? Or was it just a happy time? Well, there's there's always the rumblings. You know, I'm not a political person. I don't play well with others if they're going to try to jockey politically around and maneuver and manipulate. So, you know, I put my nose to my grindstone. Um, and we did over 100 studies over a 10-year period. And most of the data went into grant proposals and, and research, you know, small research studies. But um, I was happy. I used to tell people I, I have the best job in the world. Okay. Why? Because, you know, there are millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars actually being spent to produce data from patients to do things like try to learn how to predict who's going to respond well to which chemotherapy or which treatment for cancer. Sure. Wow. That's, that's like, I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it right now, thinking about how useful it would be to not waste people's time by giving them one drug. Did it work? No. Okay, we'll stop that. We'll try another one. Suffering the toxicity yeah. of three and four and five, six different treatments, but rather pretty much, pretty well know whether you're wasting your time with a given treatment uh, idea. And so I was on a huge number of grant proposals. They're called SPORs. I was on pro- project grants. I was on... I brought in seven and a half million dollars of military money mm. to try to help the U.S. military. Uh, that was, this was per year for five years to try to help the U.S. military d- determine, just determine whether they could detect biomarkers in the blood of men and women on the field in in in, in the theater of war, uh, uh, if there was a, a pathogen, a, a bioweapon that was mm, used mm, against mm. them. Okay. Okay. Interesting. So, so the, you know, it fit my core goal and my ideal of. Biomedicine, medical practice, that we should be trying to reduce human pain and suffering through knowledge. Were you also, though, at this time, I'm just curious because, you know, I was reading, uh, got through most of the Cure versus Profit books, which was an amazing book. And, um, like, would you say you were, I don't even want to say, I don't mean this word derogatory, Doc, but were you naive then at how things were, or has science just changed? I science is not pure science, but like the way we do it, you called it suicide, pseudoscience. Like, were yeah. you a little Pollyanna about it? Did you would you say you were, were 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 naive, or was it as corrupt then, or did something change? I know you're kind of getting into that story, but at that time, would you have said you were you felt very much an integrity and what was happening I, scientifically? I, I, you know, I projected an aura about me that I wasn't one to mess with because I wasn't okay. going to play ball. Okay, so I I kind of created my own reality, and and that's a lesson that if I could talk to people who are in the throes of being in academia, if, if you're a, a young assistant professor and you think, oh my gosh, this institution eats their own, well, speak truth to power. If mm. if you're a postdoc at an institution and some guy's telling you, come over and be a faculty in my department, say, show me one of the faculty that you've recruited from postdoc that's made tenure. Show that you're not stealing our, all of our ideas or taking credit mm-hmm. for all of our grant money. I'll tell you, my identity was wrapped up, and that's another mistake, you know, to, and, and it happens a lot. I think it's, you know, especially in science. My identity was so wrapped up into this position that when the university and I had to part ways, and it wasn't anything I did, it was they came, came in with a brand-new chancellor who had his own bioinformatics core literally sent this creepy dude that looked like he was from, you know, some, some bad action television series to come in with his cell phone in his ear, walk around and take inventory of what we had. Wow. He found my supercomputer. He found my staff. He found our, our, you know, I had a great gig going and everybody knew it sure. and, and he, and he wanted it. So he just basically said, I'm the biggest, you know, I'm a yeah. 1600 pound gorilla. This is my domain. I'm going to take this away from you. And, and so my identity took a hit my, and, okay. and I was hurt. I was hurt by, you know, I had a gig lined up at Johns Hopkins University. I could have gone that way. I'm glad I didn't. 
because I decided to start writing books instead and then see what would happen if I created a, an independent research institute to continue doing research in, for the public uh, to reduce human pain and suffering through knowledge. And it was really, that's IPAC. That, 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 that was really an experiment to see where it would go. And we've subsequently published a, a really good number of, uh, given the amount of funding that we've, limited amount of funding we've had, a good number of hard-hitting, high-impact studies that have really raised the bar on the question of, like, the safety of aluminum in vaccines. And we did a vax versus unvax study um, that, you know, that eventually was retracted. But Dr. Russell Blaylock and I revisited it and showed using the same data that the speculation that caused the retraction was wrong. And so, you know, yeah, I was thrilled. I was happy, but I made the mistake of tying my personal identity up with my professional identity. And I don't know if I can transmit that well enough. It's very important to realize that you don't have a choice but to be yourself, whoever you are. And if you're the person that's going through this particular experience right now and it's painful, then that's who you are. And, you know, the future can be extremely bright after a dark period. But, you know, the day after they pink listed or whatever, the pink yeah. slipped uh, me and my five staff members, I got on the I got on the horn and I was calling all the departments we were doing business with, doing projects with. And I said, hey, you know, uh, this person, that they've got kids. Uh, you think you might be able to absorb them in your department? And so, you know, I put other people first. I'm generous to a fault. That was actually generous to a fault was on my faculty evaluation when I was in the Department of Pathology. Wow. It, you know, like collaborative to a fault and generous to a fault. I'm like, mm. how can you be too collaborative? You're doing some research on cancer. Wow. It's the number one thing that people don't want to get, you know. <laughs> yeah. Let's collaborate. Let's, talk. Let's put our ideas <laughs> together. Let's talk. Let's not compete, right? Oh, wow. And so to, to that extent, it could be said that I was Pollyannish, but I'm mm. more, more so than Pollyannish, I think I'm an idealist. Yeah. And that's by choice. You know, we have to carry the ideals of what kind of society and civilization we want around in our heads. Mm. That's why I will never accept Stoicism as a worthy endeavor. Mm. Uh, I want to understand how we can best understand. And that's a tall order from, from a philosophy of science perspective. I'm a PhD, remember, and so I take that very seriously. I do read and have read mass tomes and tomes of philosophies of science. And... Um, so anyway, yeah, I feel like it was a great gig, uh, best job in the world. I was making a difference. I was engaged in national discussions. It, Andy von Eschenbach, love him or leave him, you know, was the acting director of the NCI at the time. He was the former commissioner of the FDA. At, at one of the meetings of all the cancer centers, he pulled me up on stage in front of like 300 of my colleagues and said, you know, something like he gave me a big hug. He said, this man should be, you know, heralded as a hero. Well, I forget exactly what he said, but it, he it, that made people jealous. The, the back, the backlash, the political wow. backlash. And it's not that the problem is I compete by not competing. I compete by collaborating if, if I find in a comp competitive situation. And uh, and so, yeah, I think there was there was some pride in at the University of Pittsburgh Cancer Institute because I'd created a, an open access journal. Uh, they, they, they had some boasting rights and all the rest. And I was having a high impact by providing a platform to guide people to do better science. So, you know, now I, I've got IPAC. I created an online university. We're teaching people in great detail the fundamentals and the advances uh, and the advanced topics in bi biology and biomedicine and health. Well, I talk um, about your generosity. I mean, I'm familiar with the work and like, I mean, you offer these high-end classes by high-end, you know, professors, doctorates and PhDs and for, 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 I mean, sometimes free, very reasonable. Like it's, I mean, if you want to have, I was, I was laughing at it the other, not laughing. I was like, this is, if people only knew what they have access to here. So, you know, if you are listening to this and you. and you, you're, you're, some of this might be new to you. Um, you know, dive into to Doc's, what he's talking about here is his work, his website, his books, because he is, it's interesting that people have said that about you generous, you know, to a fault and generous, even with your ability to collaborate, because I don't, what's the old saying? It's amazing what can get done if you don't care who gets the credit, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it rings of that, right? And, and here yeah. we sit in a time where there, if there was ever, to your point, if there was ever a need for this type, and the irony to me is here we have something and I'm, you know, we're just on the phone, so I'm using air quotes and, and I know you have a, a handle on this much better than I do, but we, you know, science, this term, it's, 
if there was anything that you think we could rally around, it would be something that has parameters, something that has objective objectives and, and rules, if you will. Mm. Yet here we sit where it's the wild west, like it's kind of ironic. Now, listen, to me, there is things that are mysterious in the world. There's things I'm not going to understand from the love I have for my children or, you know, a, an idea that comes into my head that I don't know where it came from. Like there's things that I don't know if we'll ever understand on this, you know, yeah. this time. However, that doesn't mean that there aren't things that we, that we can't understand, right? It doesn't mean nothing can be understood. Totally. So how have you, and I know there's more to the story, so I didn't mean to jump in there, but how do you, how have you navigated this holding, uh, uh, you know, trying to hold a line in science, which seems almost like an oxymoron, like, isn't it just science? Can you, for maybe the, the lay public, myself, just give us your definition, maybe it's the definition, but how should we see science? What are, what does good science look like at the foundational level? Because I think so many of us, we just get sound bites through some news station or social media and we go, I don't know, it said jabs are safe and effective, right? And that's the totality of what we see. And we think, well, they're smarter than me. How does this even come to be? I know there's a lot in that question, but take what you want out of that and make it make sense. Yeah, it's, it's very straightforward, actually. So um, the history of that question came about in the form of, you know, Aristotle, Plato, how do we know things? But more, much more recently and more relevant to today um, was Karl Popper, Sir Karl Popper. He was knighted for his contributions. And he, he was in uh, pre-Nazi Germany. He saw fascism on the rise. He saw that the philosophical, ideological foundations of Nazism was actually uh, founded on uh, the abuse of what he saw was logic and reason um, and science by a group called the Vienna School, which predated Nazism. And the, according to the Vienna School, you can know things by collecting confirming instances. You know, if you wanted to know uh, what the color of apples are, you can go out in the world and collect a bunch of red apples and say, hey, look, apples are red. Great, fine. So now you've made that knowledge claim and that's a process of induction you said apples all apples are red now what popper said was now if you're going to try to enforce enforce that as a policy that we have to act according to the rule that all apples are red because scientists have declared basically all apples are red don't you think you should check and right and don't you think you should try to challenge that generalization? Don't make a hasty generalization here. Let's actually test it as a hypothesis instead of a claim of fact. Mm -hmm. And so how many non-red apples does it take to falsify the generalization? One. All apples are red. That's a question to you. Ben. Yeah, one, right? Just takes one. It it takes one. So he says, listen, science, this is a description, not a prescription. This is a, a description by which we can demarcate science from non-science. If you're making knowledge claims on the basis of something that you yourself, in earnest and with high integrity and honor, have sat down and tried to think of a critical test by which you can challenge the notion of what you think is true. And then you apply that test and look at the evidence of the test and evaluate the hypothesis in light of the evidence of the test. Either it fails the test and you have falsified it or it, it actually passes the test and you have corroborated it. So I'm a Popperian scientist and I, and I, I, I wasn't alive in the 40s and 50s and 60s. I was born in 1967. But looking at the progress of what happened then in the philosophy of science, there's a man named Thomas Kuhn uh, who came in with the idea that, no, wait a minute, science progress doesn't progress that way. That's gradualistic. Um, it's, it's incremental. Science actually changes when everybody in the room changes their opinion because a sufficient amount of evidence has accumulated and show that the last generation was wrong. Okay. And that he called a paradigm shift, which we can all immediately relate to because we lived in postmodern America where there's fads and we follow the latest mm. fads. Look at the hair that these boys are wearing today. You know, just, <laughs> just 
So, you know, I thought we, I was going to be the only one with a mullet. Now they're wearing mullets again when I, you know, from when I was a kid, it's something yeah, don't shouldn't come back. <laughs> fanny packs came back about 2021 for a, for a little minute. That's but funny. anyway, so we have this, we have these two views that you can make these generalizations. And if everybody agrees that that's true, then we'll call that truth. And Popper's like, no, wait a minute. You're crazy. You never get to know truth. Truth is so fine granular. Mm. Right. It doesn't matter if you're studying the flight of birds, migratory pattern of birds, if you're studying mating habits of, you know, weevils, uh, it doesn't matter what you're studying. Your best shot at understanding what's going on is an approximation of the truth. And so we have a a second demarcation between knowledge and the truth. And the truth is something that is just forever in science, just out of our reach. And if you think that you have the truth, just wait long enough and someone else will think of a critical test that you couldn't think of because they're more creative or they have new technology and they just might falsify what you think is truth. And then that evidence will then cause this revolution. And so, you know, for me, this science versus non-science demarcation, then I watched in horror as I, you know, wanted, I wanted you, you're reading cures versus profits. That's yeah. a very innocent chapter in cures versus profits on vaccines. Yeah, My yeah. chapter on vaccines was added at the last minute. I thought it was going to take me two weeks to write it. And I was going to move on to another book entirely. And uh, I tried to just justify the knowledge claims that I, the thesis at the beginning of the chapter is vaccines are safe and effective and they save millions of lives. And then you, if you read that chapter, yeah, I read it. Yeah. you'll see that I tear it apart. <laughs> I, I end up not being able to warrant that thesis by the end. It's funny. I literally, when I got to the last page of that chapter, because on my, I was reading it on ebook and it, it still said I had like 25 pages left or something, you know? And yeah. I was like, huh. And then I get, and then it was, it was the notes, right? It was the, you know, the yeah. end notes of the chapter. And I was like, cause I was, <laughs> cause it was, I was waiting for like, well, is he going to try to say the other, some, you know, the redeemingness of this? And I was like, okay, I'm going to kind of read between the lines here a little bit. I think that uh, what I just read is uh, these things are pretty much a disaster. Uh, not to put words in your mouth, but I mean, you know, and I was, it's interesting because that was that a 2016 book, Doc? 2015. Okay. And that chapter is an accurate recording of my journey down the rabbit hole, so to speak. Yeah, interesting. It, it literally is like, it reads like a journal. Uh, okay. I interviewed Brian Hooker right, right. about, about the uh, William Thompson confessions and so on. And I listened to every word William Thompson had to say, I read every word on the transcripts and I listened to everything that was recorded. And, you know, the worst thing that people say, Oh, you know, he, he showed that there was one study that they faked the data on. And so it was the vaccines and autism on time MMR versus delayed MMR. It led to the movie vaxxed and all the rest. Sure. You know, I was writing my book at the same time that vax was being produced. And Brian said to me at the end of the video, uh, end of the interview, he said, uh, for the book, he said, uh, you know, we're making a documentary about this. So, you know, I was right on the, on the heels of these guys doing the documentary with my book chapter. And, um, uh, the number one thing that struck me that really caused me to be horrified Mm. and crystallized that I won't ever shy away from risk, risk to kids in terms of uh, medicine that might be harmful to them was that William Thompson said to Brian Hooker, um, yes, this particular paper by Frank DiStefano et al. Uh, did not go to the to the review, the internal review committee. And Brian said, what is the internal review committee? And uh, Thompson said, that's the committee that reads every study before it goes to a journal to make sure that the language does not, mm-hmm. you know, uh, scare people away from vaccines. And I, okay. And then... He, Brian, uh, Brian said, wait a minute, what the hell is that? And then Hooker said, uh, I'm sorry, yeah. Thompson said, oh, no, we do that for every vaccine study. It's not just this one. Every vaccine study goes through sanitation committee. And that's when I, the floor fell out from underneath me. Mm. They we're flying blind. We don't even have radar. We don't have, <laughs> we're nothing, yeah, yeah. right? And, and, and we have no idea what damage might be happening to these kids and they're pushing then that after I wrote my chapter, they really started pushing. uh, And after Vax came out, they really started pushing, taking away exemptions for mandates, uh, mandated for for pediatric vaccines 
And then I got swept into kind of a whirlwind tour with Del Bigtree and Bobby sure. Kennedy and many others and our, our late beloved Tony Bark right, right. Um, testifying at state capitol saying, hey, um, here's what you're being told about vaccines. This is what the science actually says. And by the way, it's fraud. So, you know, I, I still correct people. I kind of have like a knee-jerk reaction when people say, I can't trust science. I'm like, well, no, you can't trust fraud. Please don't throw away mm-hmm. science. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of people that on the left that are concerned that they're the what they see as anti-science from the right will lead to things like the destruction of science departments and schools and things like mm-hmm. that. Like, no, 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 wait a minute. That would be that would be an atrocious disaster. If you take away science out of universities, if you take away science out of the school curriculum and so on, because even if you have a religious fervor and you yeah. want to do this out of defensive, right? Yeah. You, you are then just leaving all the science to these agencies. Do you and see? They're going to do, and they're going to do whatever the pharmaceutical companies need to get their products into your body. So let me, because this I think is so, it's so important. It's interesting. So that was my first question was to ask you about that chapter because I was curious because I, you know, I've known, I've known you more since then than I did before then. And, um, and I was, so, you can see why people, and of course, since I'm in practice, I see patients, I see just the public, you know, public interaction. And you hear now I'm, I'm probably have a biased group of people being in more holistic type of care, but, but you see how people have been so frustrated over these last few years where they just about do metaphorically throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? Which is, I don't trust a darn thing that comes out of these three letter agencies. I don't trust you know, just fill in the blank after that point. And, and they have justification. This is why I wanted to have you on because in many ways they're, they're right. They have very strong grounds to be very frustrated by what is happening and you don't almost know who to trust. So then you can see how we just say to heck with it, throw our hands up in the air and say, um, you know, I'm just going to, you know, do my thing or something. Now that does create a vacuum for, for, like you said, we either just, if we leave it completely, cause it's not stopping, then it's going to just be even worse is, is one thought on it. Um, do you, but also, I guess my other question before you answer that one, doc, was it hard? Did you have a, a crisis moment in there when you came up, you, you woke up to this, you start, you know, Dell and Bobby and those guys and, and you're seeing what's happening or was your, was it not hard for you to step in and once it made, once you saw it to just fight or did you go, Oh man, this is probably a, a, a you know, career killer, if you will. Well, listen, no, I, listen, I had, I had kids. Yeah. Uh, my, my two boys are now, uh, you know, uh, graduating college and uh, one's in, in graduate school, yeah. but at the time they were, they were in middle school. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, um, I, I was in a relationship. And so my decision was going to impact other people. I knew full well that if I put this chapter in this book, I did not have to put the chapter in the book. Mm. It was of my own volition. I wasn't under contract to write a chapter or anything like that. Uh, I knew that if I did it, that it would end forever. My um, academic or your yeah. ability to ever get a position at a university. I knew it. Um, cause I know how the game was being played. Uh, and so I had seen a video of a young man who was having seizures after vaccines and he has them on an ongoing basis. So I remember I was on McKnight road in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I pulled into a drugstore. Grace was in the car next to me. I said, Grace, I got a decision to make. Will you watch this video with me? And I watched it one more time and I said, okay. Mm. So from, from that perspective, mm. you know, I wasn't being heroic. It was, mm. there's a kid out there whose brain's going to be destroyed. Yeah. All right. Their life is going to be destroyed for, for me to have a cushy job. I know what I know. I have to get it out there. What I want, what I thought now, I knew it was going to be tough, tough. And I have sold three properties mm. to make, do with IPAC and to launch IPAC EDU. I have sold through, you know, and I'm not saying the society owes me anything, yeah, yeah, but that's yeah. how dedicated I am. And if you got, I'm either a fanatic and I'm crazy <laughs> or, you know, kids need to have protection. And if I'm wrong about vaccines and seizures causing brain damage, then there's a whole lot of other people who I respect, like Dr. Russell Blaylock. And sure. there's a whole lot of life experience that's been lived by parents who saw their mm-hmm. kids go, go into seizures or autism or, or other problems with vaccines. 
The irony is you were you were just doing it in the name of science. I think is yeah. something that is interesting. You know, you, you weren't, listen, and, and I, 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 I'm a firm believer in trust the parents and the greatest doctor is the one that lives with the kid. They know more about it than most. So I'm not suggesting handing your agency away to anybody. However, you know, you were, you were, you know, you think, sometimes you think, okay, I'm going to make this scientific statement. Who can, who's going to debate that? Who's going to argue that? Who's going to, not that we can't chew up on science a little bit, but my point is it must've been in your position as a scientist and a dad going, but this is crazy. Like, like let's all to your point earlier in this conversation, collaborate. Let's, if there's some truth in here, let's figure it out. Who knows where yeah. it's going to end. Um, you talk about that in the chapter. If there's a subset group of people that have underlying challenges genetically or otherwise predispositions, let's find out who they are so we can prevent that. Now, if it's deeper than that and broader than that, or it's more impactful or, or it's, you know, there's fraud in there. Well, then we got to, you know, we got to flush that out too. So I guess what was, what's interesting about your seat, you're not just a dad with a, injured child, like, you know, Dr. Hooker or something like that, you're sitting here going, well, no, in the name of science, this is not okay. Yeah. You know, which I, yeah. it had to be an interesting thing. And I didn't think you, you know, interesting for you to think this isn't where I'm going to lose the debate and something I'm an expert in, you know, doing science, but there you well, are. Yeah. yeah. For so far as the scientific method. And so, yeah, years on kind of, kind of like, you know, to help society come back together over these issues. Um, the very first course that I, that I taught, uh, out of university online to the public was how to read and interpret a scientific study. Mm-hmm. And that's a very popular course at IPAC EDU. Um, but, you know, back, back, back at that time, I remember, you know, starting to write a blog at jameslyonsweiler.com. Those articles are, are still there. I write mostly almost a hundred percent now at popular rationalism on Substack. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think I would have, you know, it was a bunch of people that attacked me viciously when I started mm-hmm. asking questions. There and the the scale of the uh, the asymmetry of their attack on me and my credentials and whether or not I was a crazy person and you know and whether I you know they didn't attack the reason or the logic or the the, the, the you know the structure of my argument. Yeah. They simply went after. Uh, their goal was to make me appear to be irrational. And I remember feeling very much so that I probably would not have fallen down the rabbit hole as fast if they hadn't shoved Mm, me. mm, Right. mm. The way that they treated me, like all of a sudden after all this year after year, you know, study after study, publication after publication, you can go to PubMed and see all my studies there a world-renowned person who helped create the field of bioinformatics. I was part of the Early Detection Research Network at the NIH. I founded uh, an, uh, an open-access journal called Cancer Informatics, which is still you know, a hugely successful journal, uh, peer-reviewed journal. And so I wrote an article that this pro-vaccine contingent fails to distinguish an objective pro-vaccine rational scientist from an anti-vaxxer. Mm. This was probably 2015, about the time I started asking questions. And, uh, you know, it's just been war ever since. They, they've declared war on me as a person for daring to insist that we should apply the same standards and rigors of science at, in vaccines and vaccine safety as we do other things. Yeah. And to me, it is that simple. It literally is that simple. And they can obfuscate, they can make it, they can complexify uh, but the ad hominems, the personal attacks, they literally, I, and I told them this, I said, your statements add no, have no empirical content. That's a, an argument from pure logic, right? What are you doing? Yeah. You know, why not take, you know, a piece of dog poo off of your front lawn and throw it against the front wall of your house and say, there, see, you're wrong. <laughs> I mean, that's the legit, your opinion of me does not change reality. You yeah, don't get yeah, to yeah, win yeah. an argument because you have a bad opinion. Mm. And by the way, you're kind of a butthead for treating me the way that you are, but that's an, that's just an empirical observation on my part. So, um, how was that when you guys started traveling and you were speaking? So, you know, Vaxxed is out and you're with Bobby and Dell and you're talking to these, you know, and, and others and you're, you know, these state legislators and things. Now, let me, we're curious, were you thinking, Hey, I'm going to bring them the, I'll bring them the truth and some science or whatever term we want to use here. And, and I'm going to be able to change some hearts and some minds, not, in right. a, not thinking that it would be easier than it was. Uh, how was that experience? Did it, did it steal you even further or was it a surprising, the kickback or, you know, 
you're an all-in kind of guy, and so you just you just do your part, or because you know, I said here you said you're not really a political guy, and I even reading that in your book and reading your materials, you you somehow stay above the fray. I don't know how you do it, but uh, you seem mm. to do it. You seem to do it well. Um, how was that experience initially? Uh, yeah, I guess you weren't on Twitter last night. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did see you this morning, and you did I threw a couple bobbies I, in there, but yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, I've come a long ways, I guess. Um, <laughs> Hardened by steel. I learned by immersion. One thing I've learned about myself is that I learned by immersion. So this was a very immersive experience. It lasted two years. I'll still show up and testify, you know, uh, but I, I make a point to tell these people, uh, whether it's a, a, a committee or a bunch of legislators or whatever, um, you may, if they have a pending bill and that's what's being debated, I'm not going to tell you my opinion on the bill. I, I don't want you to know my opinion on the bill. I'm just going to talk about the science and let you decide what you should think about the bill. If you find what I'm what I have to say valuable, good. Don't. I'm not here to convince you one way or the other. But here's some things that I think you need to know. And in that but is everything. So mm -hmm. my experience was I'm going to go as an educator. I'm going to provide the references. And what I found was, you know, uh, like in the, in uh, New Brunswick, Canada, uh, there was a bunch of us that went up there to help them out when they tried to s strip away the vaccine exemptions. Um, that committee actually came a long way. It was Dr. Bob Sears and myself mm -hmm. and Ted Koontz and a bunch of others. It, they came a long way in really understanding why we saw, at least why we saw vaccine safety the way we saw it. And so it varied, my experience varied from state to state, obviously. And in, in this immersive experience, one of the most profound and wonderful things that I, that I experienced was, uh, you know, you go to a, basically almost any state capital and you have to hand them your wallet and your keys and you have to go through a scanner and all the rest. But in Oregon, people were walking around in the state capital with open carry. Now, where's what is that? How is that relevant to what we're talking about? Well, there's variation from state to state in the rules and the laws. Not and not every state is a clone, and so that really reinforces the idea that our great democracy is 50 independent, semi-independent, semi-autonomous democracies. And I know people are going to say, "Wait, it's a republic." Yes, sure, it's sure, a republic. Sure. It's it's actually a confederation, but you know. There, there are 50 experiments on how to get things right and, more importantly, how to get things wrong. And so that one state should be able to learn from the from another about their mistakes. And so the very fact that on the heels of this then, you know, they had the, the, the measles epidemic, which was not, not an epidemic at all. It was a right. little outbreak. Right. And they blew that way out of proportion. And they there's, okay, we got to – every kid everywhere has got to be vaccinated against everything. Right. Um because of this measles outbreak, 21% of the measles, oh, sorry, 38% of the measles cases from Disneyland were actually vaccine type right. rashes, misdiagnosed as measles. Um, so we now we were going into a total police state over vaccines. How convenient mm. that we have this this epidemic. And so, of course, when I've heard about the uh, that became a pandemic. I heard about the virus. The first thing I did was download the proteins and use my bioinformatics skills and analyze all of it and say, hey, if you're going to make a vaccine, go ahead. But don't put these particular parts of these proteins in the vaccine because you're going to make people sick. Mm. And you can go to that paper. It's April 2020, wow. right? And most people look, were just learning about the virus in April of 2020. And yeah. I had a peer-reviewed publication on it because I could see the writing on the wall. There's going to be mass casualties from the vaccine because you're going to try to mandate a respiratory virus vaccine during a pandemic, and they're going to have to do multiple doses, and oh my gosh, look what's going to happen. People are going to get autoimmunity through molecular mimicry and everything else. Well, one of the most satisfying, I think probably the, 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 the icing on the cake right now of my academic career was at Harvard University, took my results, and my paradigm of pathogenic priming and completely validated it in the lab. Aristo Vajdani and his colleagues hmm. um, found that B cells that, that I predicted and that they then predicted in their own analysis um, uh, would in fact react in an autoimmune manner to this and that part of the SARS-CoV-2 virus as well as this and that of the spike protein. One of those proteins is Titan in the heart. Hmm. 
And so, you know, with the coagulation and the loss of immunity, you know, the, the impairment of immunity and so on, I had already read all the problems with mercury and, right, right. and from the research on aluminum, and I know that those were going to harm your immunity as well. Well, now we have a biological attack on our immune system because a third of the proteins that if you look at the virus, a third of the proteins, if they're going to cause autoimmunity, are actually immune-related proteins. Well, is that the virus at, mm -hmm. at war with us and trying to impair our immunity so it does better? Um or is that through laboratory manipulation because it's a, you know, right, right. a bioweapon that's being researched? And so then my next gig was to say, okay, look at is what's the probability that this came from the lab? And so that 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 put me on Christian Broadcast News on, right. on the high wire and so right, on right. with Daryl and my friends there to say, hey, look, it looks like there might be some possibility. Uh, that there's a problem here that, that this seems to have been a release. Well, now in retrospect, I, on my on my Substack and Popular Rationalism, I this past uh, I think three two or three months ago, I published an article that said, of course, it was from the lab. Every single look, here's oh. all the cases, here's all the instances in the past where viruses have escaped from the lab, and it involved human human transmission, it involved deaths. Okay, and it's not as though this isn't happening all the time. Right. Right. And so, you know, John Stewart's little bit there about, you know, there's an outbreak yeah, yeah. of chocolate, chocolatey goodness. Where Hershey, did the yeah. chocolatey goodness come from? Hershey, Pennsylvania. Oh, my God, it couldn't possibly have come from the Hershey factory. Yeah. You know, it's that, that very epiphany um, for the proximity of the outbreak. But, you know, all the evidence points to laboratory uh, escape. And, there, and then the question is: Was it was it yeah. intentional? Was it intentionally manipulated to make people sick and all the rest? And I, I think it was intentionally manipulated to make people sick because the justification is we have to find out how close to a deadly bioweapon we can come, mm. just in case some some of the bad guys do it. So we need to know if we can make a vaccine that's effective. Mm. And so this is their justification to actually make bioweapons um, in the lab to try to see how how close humanity could get to it without any comprehension that hey you know what mm. that, that janitor just might cut cut corners in the disposal of the laboratory animals right they might not follow safety protocol or you know it's as if they thought that they had a magic bubble around them on safety if it wasn't intentional if it was an accident but then the, the cover-up is where the intention comes mm -hmm. um, and the cover-up is is obvious china told the scientists to stop criticizing anybody who said it was from the lab including me after the scientists actually chinese scientists published a paper saying we are appalled that ipac james lyons weiler would say that this virus was somehow you know from the lab um that's all very early on it's all part of the peer-reviewed literature now so i do have this kind of like storied existence mm -hmm. but thank you this has been a crystallizing reflection moment for me because it is really truly all about making sure that science survives to the next generation i have two boys and there are tons and tons of thousands of kids who were raised that science is a good way of knowing mm. and if they turn to science and they find people like fauci and the others who are liars and cheats and thieves and just that their character gives allows them to write themselves permission slips to lie to the public about reality mm. That I don't want them to follow that model, and I don't mm. want them to become disenchanted in science. Uh, so it's good, really important. This is going to seem like a, a strange segue, but I have a question that I want to talk to you about, and I, I thank you for walking us down just kind of this, almost this logic or flow chart of maybe how we got to where we got, and a lot of times there's, there's, there's often, even you used the reference earlier back in the beginning about how uh, in the beginning time was at the Vienna Institute, is that what it was called? Um, you know, or Vienna School. You know, like we often don't see it at its very, imp at, at its beginning. If, if we're not close to it or we just don't have uh, uh, the right lens to see it, we can miss things that on hindsight, of course, seem very obvious. And so now we, as we look back through these last few years, we, you know, we do want to learn from things, but we also don't want to, like you said, walk away just out of frustration and, and throw our hands up. I think that is, uh, would lead to worse outcomes. That being said, um, a person like yourself that has such extensive knowledge in, in good science and isn't afraid to uh, go where it takes you, uh, this this is funny. I was reading your article about the Kardashian, right? The Kardashian scenario, right? Because this is something that I think is, is a weird segue. People are going, where are you going with this? But there's this, sometimes for a person that 
almost says, hey, science, 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 then the, the assumption or almost the, yeah, the assumption, just the belief is, hey, the more of that, the better, and let's just do, <laughs> just do science to everybody. So this article you were referencing, I think with Kardashian saying, hey, you know, and, and being in holistic medicine, I see some of these clinics that open up. And again, I'm a supporter of most of this, but it's some of this, this high-end, you know, everybody needs a full body scan every six months and everybody needs blood work every 30 seconds. And I shirk from some of that, Doc, for me, because first of all, I think it puts, um, it puts healthy living or, or healthy a good healthcare, it seems it seemingly puts it out of reach for the average person, which I don't believe it should be. I believe that people should be able to be well and not have to be a you know independently wealthy to have that happen. I just believe that, generally speaking, good clean living is available to us and should be available to us, and that does include clean water and clean air and things like that. That being said. I think people have a false belief that, well, wouldn't that be a good thing if we could just get everybody a CT scan tomorrow? I remember reading this article, then I want to get your your thoughts on this, because I think this will give people maybe a, a, a contrast where, you know, just because we have science, uh, and I use it many times I'm using air quotes here, doesn't mean that we just need to apply it to everybody all the time, every second. I remember an article when wearables were first kind of coming out and getting more popular and they could, you know, pick up potential arrhythmias and some of this stuff. And they were interviewing this. Um, and then the argument was, well, Hey, should we have the, the, the eye watch, you know, uh, or whatever, like automatically call the ambulance to you and this kind of thing. And, and I remember they were interviewing this cardiologist and he said, I think it's a terrible idea. And his point was, and I'm not picking up his exact numbers, but his point was, hey, about 97% of the time, those are nothing, or 97% or of the time people just have those. They're kind of a normal variant. They don't all need intervention. And since interventions are dangerous and costly and deadly for some people, we have to really kind of pause and think about this. And so do you mind, and I don't mean to put you on the spot here, Doc, but like, because there's an other side. I mean, even though you work in applied science and how this trans, or translational science and how it applies to people and humans and real life outcomes, there's also, you know, an appreciation, I think, I don't want to put words in your mouth. We have to have an appreciation for humans' ability to adapt and heal as they are. And not yeah. everything needs an intervention every second of the day. And I know, I think, right. you know, believe it. So what's your, do you mind talking about that Kardashian piece and, and your, your, your take on that? Yeah, sure. So the question that at hand is whether or not if you have a screening procedure, uh, is it ethical? It's really a question of ethics to apply it to everyone in the population. Uh, and let's, let's ask it a different way. When is it ethical to do so? So the, the problem becomes apparent when you look at the numbers. If you have, uh, you know, say a million people okay. that you're going to screen and you're just using it because the technology might, you know, like a CT scan might be able to pick out an anomaly. Sure. Um, and, and you're just using it because you want to do early detection and you're doing it for all the right reasons. Or let's say it's a PCR test for COVID-19. And wouldn't it be nice if everybody just test, just test before you go to work? You know, no problem. If you're positive, you're positive. If you're not, you're not. Yeah, what's the harm in that, and, right? Come on. What kind of person are you that would go against that? Right, exactly. And the problem is the presumption that if you're positive, you're positive, and you're not, you're not, is not correct. The tests are not perfect. Um, the ability for the test to any test, any diagnostic test, to be able to give physicians 100% uh, accuracy is almost non-existent. Uh, mm -hmm. In part of it, it's because of the of the um, idea that you know we really haven't worked out the diagnostic problems of how to use multiple factors. But if you're just doing a screen, you're just saying, okay, I want to see if anybody has something, and then we're, and then what? Yeah, the presence uh, of that it, doesn't it mean infection, it, yeah, right, or that you're, it, yeah, for sure. In, in commonly, in layperson speak, it, it puts the, the, the cart before the horse because um, if you have a test that sometimes says that you're positive, for, say, for the virus or that you have an anomaly, um, individually you're going to be concerned. Oh my gosh, they think that I have cancer. Sure. Okay, fine. So there's the emotional toll. That's a problem. But then multiply that by, you know, three out of a hundred times a million. If it's a 3% yeah. false positive rate, that's a lot of people. Okay. So that's a huge number of people. And then if you apply it to say to the whole uh, population, uh, uh, say the United States, sure. Uh, or the world, 
you're talking about, you know, like 30,000 people that are going to have to get a biopsy to find out whether that little thing is real or not. And those, that there's a, there's a non-zero risk of dying from biopsy. You might get an infection. It could go systemic. And so given the, it's really a matter of how rare is the condition that you're screening for versus the risk of the follow-up procedures right. and to society in general, then sure. Everybody could have a PCR machine right next to their front door. <laughs> Just put your finger in it and it'll dab little dab of blood or whatever. And boom, now you get tested but you're going to have to lock down for 10 days. Remember the 10 day isolation lockdown if you're positive. So out of a million people, you're locking down 30,000 people. That's a huge segment of the society to lock down for 10 days and you're doing it every day. It's 30,000 people every day. If everybody's testing every day. And so uh, apparently, you know, there's a, there's a doctor in the UK, he's a licensed physician. I ran across his, his uh, video, somebody sent it to me and they, and somebody said, this is what you've been saying, but you've been saying it about um, a colleague sent it to me. You've been saying it all about the, uh, about COVID testing. Um, and Kim Kardashian and other influencers are using um, CT scans on a routine basis to try to make sure that they detect cancer early. Again, out of the goodness of their heart, yeah. they're letting other people know, hey, this is cool, let's do this. The companies are cashing in, so to speak. The doctor says this. Well, he does a very good job at outlining all the technical arguments that I've made. And like I said, I like to celebrate reason and logic. I, I'll, I'll, he's a good guy. Yeah. Um, you know, he's, he's telling the truth here. And so he lays it out. And reasonably, he makes a few references to some videos you have to watch. But it's the same exact analogy that I used April 2020 onward to say, don't use PCR testing on asymptomatic people as a screen. Now, the irony here, Ben, is Duke University actually did a fascinating study of Marine recruits that were isolated on a college campus. They were housed separately, two by two in their own separate dorms. Okay. That's how, that's how isol yeah. they were, isolation to extreme. They ate separately. They did most of the training outdoors and they did a PCR test on every person that was in that cohort of Marine recruits. Every time somebody tested positive, they took them out of the training program, but the virus quote unquote still spread. Mm. Okay. So their answer wasn't, screening people and removing them stops the spread and it helps. Their answer was we should test everybody in the United States every day. <laughs> and, and they're clearly trying to push, this was a Duke university study, trying to push testing um, as a mass profit. I, I believe that they were doing it. It doesn't make any sense logically. It's the only explanation that I can think of. Uh, well, it, you know, it, it turns out that these PCR machines, if you, sample anything that's got nucleic acid in it, whether it's, you know, fish from the market or pineapple, mm -hmm. uh, and you run the PCR all the way out to 45 cycles, yeah. you will get fluorescence to the, to the peak. You'll see the peak fluorescence and you'll say, Oh, look, it, it actually amplified. So that means something is there. It's called nonspecific binding of the primers to, you know, off target amplification. Now take a human sample there's plenty of other DNA in there for mm -hmm. on too, plenty of other RNA and so on. So we're, we see this huge cost of the false positives. I've written a, an article on it. It's published in the International Journal of Vaccine Theory, Research, and Practice, where I actually mathematically calculate what this what this practice was doing at the time. It's sheer madness to expect that without having a control sample in your PCR that tells you mm. where zero is, mm. that you're going to do anything but, you know, mostly get false positive results. And so Dr. Singhang Lee from Milford, Connecticut, was publishing some of the same material. We put together a consortium to fundraise to do research, and he was actually uh, able to procure clinical samples out of New York City that had been screened by PCR. There were 20 that were... PCR positive for COVID and 20 that were PCR negative for COVID. And he found that 60% of the negative ones were positive and 40% of the positive ones were negative when he actually sequenced the applicant. Okay. So that's how much of a mess this is. Wow. The actual reference kits that were being sent out to labs 
we're we're completely a mess in terms of their labeling on whether they had whether the patient had COVID or not. And then the final validation on this is, um, unfortunately, New York Times actually published on. I have an article on this on on uh, on Substack on popular rationalism, um, and the article is you're not ready for this. Yeah. That when um, when they use PCR to determine what respiratory illness a person has because they're symptomatic. People with bacterial pneumonia would test positive. And so this was what I was saying in April, May 2020. Don't do this. You're going to kill those people. Yeah. They're going to get bacterial pneumonia. It's going to give, they're going to get severe bacterial pneumonia. They're going to get sepsis. They're going to die. You're not going to treat them for sepsis. You're not going to treat them for bacterial pneumonia. Sure enough, oh. New York Times published most of the people who died in hospitals on ventilators died yeah. not from COVID-19 virus, uh, the SARS virus. They died from bacterial pneumonia. Completely preventable. Now, this stuff can be a little bit complicated, this stuff of false positive sensitivity specificity. And so next year, we're going to have a course on molecular diagnostics. Mm. And we're just going to teach the fundamentals so the public can know. And that, that's why IPAC-EDU is so important. If I've had patients, I'm sorry, I've had students that have come through my classes and they've said, doctor, listen, I can talk to my, my, my brother who's a doctor and my sister-in-law, and then now they're listening to me because I know the language mm -hmm. to you. I know how to talk to them. I've had people tell me that their husbands hadn't been able to go to work two days in a row for the past 20 years, and they took my course in autoimmunity and human health, which is open mm. for registration right now, by the good, way. Good, yeah. And th that they got the doctor to accelerate the test for mast cell disease, and now he's getting his proper treatment and goes to work every day, and he's happy. Doc, do you... Do you, so I've got one just thought on this and then I want to uh, kind of ask you a final question. Um, so what interjected into, you know, you could listen to you walk us through that and you go, makes sense, makes sense, makes sense. And I think people, what I would, what I would, one thing I'd want people to consider is what can disrupt that just logic, thoughtful sequence is fear. Okay. So mm -hmm. you, you think, you know, when, when, when that's, everything you just said, when that's countered with fear. Now, I think our listening audience is person, people, people that generally uh, resist that type of stuff. But, you know, we're sitting here beginning of October. Um, I, I don't think anybody that's alive or awake thinks that we're probably never going to go through some something crazy again, whatever that means. And so mm -hmm. you need to be, you know, because, yeah, we can sit here two, three years later. Now, you were at the tip of the spear, uh, largely because of your experience and you know what to look for. You know what questions to ask. You've been doing that long before yeah. COVID came. So we, my desire is for people to not to, because it'll have a, it'll have a different name next time maybe. And it will have a different representation and it will be, oh, this is different. This is novel. This is new. This isn't like that one. This is what we got to do this time. And so if you have anything to, to say about fear, and I guess my final question is this, so maybe it goes together, is where do we go from here? You know, being a, a scientist that, you know, translational science and how does this apply to us as people today, you know, moving forward, living our lives? Do you have kind of a, a how do you sum it up? And, and not that you always can, but where do we go from here? How do you want us to think about it? How do we need to think about this that helps us in our daily lives, depending on where the future, the future takes us, right? Sure, sure. So listen, there's, I, I want you people to understand this. You were gaslit by your government. You were mm -hmm. gaslit by Fauci. It's the same exact tactic that an abusive partner uses to gaslight their their alleged loved one, their supposed loved one, in an abusive relationship. Mm -hmm. So read what you can read about how to come how to overcome gaslighting. Part of it is, you know, the let's go through the steps of gaslighting. Mm -hmm. I'm going to tell you one thing one day with all the confidence that I have, right? Or you're doing something, I'm going to correct you and say, no, it's not that, it's this. And then the very next day, I'm going to tell you that, no, it was the other. And then the third day, with all of the authority I can muster, I can say, no, let's go back to plan A. It was plan A. At that point in time, people who are trying to raise their kids, live their lives, keep do their jobs, yeah. maybe have a little downtime, right, are going to say, all right, just stop. It's too much. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm going to turn my brain off. Tell me what to do. Mm -hmm. That's the moment of compliance that everyone has to protect against when make no decision when you're in fear oh, deciding to obey someone because they are claiming to have more authority and have more knowledge than you is a decision own that decision intellectually mm -hmm. 
right? Uh, we have a course by Mark McDonald, How Not yeah. to Be Fooled. He lays out all of the trappings of the mindset of the disinformation campaign and propaganda and so on. I have... I haven't counted them in a while, but I think it's something like an embarrassing 800 articles on popular rationalism, which is free. They're all free. My, you can go to popularrationalismsubstock.com, and once a month I'm going to remind you that, hey, somebody's got to pay the bills. Maybe you want to have a paid subscription. But go to the beginning of popular rationalism. Go to the archives. And I know it's a pain, but sure. scroll all the way down to the archives and then start reading everything that I've written. And I'm not saying I'm the final here, but it's, I, I publish a lot of other people's articles there too. Yeah. And I link to them and they're all well-referenced. And so you, you own the consequences of your decisions. And if you decide to defer to someone on the basis of their authority, you still own the consequences of that decision. Mm -hmm. And I'm not blaming parents who have, yeah. you know, kids with vaccine injury because they were lied to, but they don't, they, every parent I've tried to talk out of that dark, dark spot, say, no, I still own it. It was me. I should have known. And I totally get that as a parent. You know, if I ever did anything that hurt my kid, I'm never going to say, well, I was just somebody else's fault, but it's not really about fault. It's about ownership and responsibility and responsibility means that if you could do it different again in the future, then do it different again in the future. Learn mm -hmm. from your experience and own that too. Um, empower yourself through knowledge, come to ipac-edu.org, sign up for courses, start at the fundamentals if you need to with bio a, how to read and interpret a scientific study, uh, two years, three years down the road, you'll be taking immunology. You'll be taking genetics. You'll be taking autoimmunity and human health because those are prerequisites and, and take a look at the courses that we have. We have like 160 to 180 bucks per course when there are 16 lectures, 18 lectures, I have nothing, no agenda here except for reducing human pain and knowledge. Sorry, sorry, yeah, reducing <laughs> human pain and suffering through knowledge. Sorry, that's a bad malapropism there. We never edit our shows, but if there was ever a time, that would be the one to edit. That would be the one. So strike that. I, I, do, I have no agenda here except for to reduce human pain and suffering through knowledge. Mm. And you're going to find some entertaining articles there. I'm looking at it right now. Science is retiring in December. I'm talking about Anthony Fauci, right? There's, there, I, I do use humor in my articles. And, uh, you know, we have like eighteen or 19,000 subscribers. And so sharing the articles, if you can't do a paid subs subscription, is huge, mm. right? And we have information sheets you can print out if yeah. you're the type that goes to um, – if if you go to school board meetings or if you if you're an activist, we have information sheets on mercury and aluminum and HPV vaccines and all the rest that you'll find notices about. Uh, and if anyone has any questions, and they don't like to surf the internet or do a search, just get out a pen and a pencil. You can just email us at info at ipak-edu.org. Beautiful. Uh, that's all. Doctor, you are you. Are you hopeful about the future with science? I know we're going to win. Science always comes up on top. There's no way that society can sustain itself mm. purely on technology. Our technology these days is so complex that we have to do science to understand it. Mm. So we absolutely need, right? So we absolutely need science to be able to understand what's happening. Um, and do, will we ever understand everything? No, but we need to be able to know what we can know to be able to make this world a livable place. And, you know, the, the, the second course that I put together, Ben, was um, environmental toxicology. Yeah. That, that's a huge one. So there's just, you know, I know that we're going to get there. It's going to take technology. It's going to take less infighting. It's going to take fewer shots across the aisle. It's going to take collaboration. So let's work together, you know? Well, Doc, this has been refreshing. I, I know that, um, you know, sometimes what's hard is taking people with different disciplines and expertise and subject matter experts and, and trying to get that to translate to us in a practical way. But I think this is why people love you. I think this is why people, uh, you know, enjoy uh, listening to you because you, you know, it was funny. I was, full disclosure, I was getting ready for our, our conversation and I was at a coffee shop and I, I ran into a patient and he said, uh, what are you doing? You know, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm getting ready for a podcast. And I said, I'm, I said, I'm a little intimidated. I'm having this doc on. I was telling him a little bit about you. He's a movie producer. And I said, um, 
I said, it's just, he's such a, he's so smart. Like I need to not embarrass myself with the language, right. And, and know what's going on here. It just because it's a different discipline. And so, but you have a way of taking complicated subject matter and not trying to just, you know, blow our hair back with how smart you are and how much science, you know, but helping us to, to come along with that. And so I, I want to just thank you for that as a, as a person that has followed your work and you've helped me learn things and bring us along, but also you put your money where your mouth is, or I guess some of your, what's used against you, put too much of your money where your mouth is right. Um, to try to do this thing. So I just, God bless you for your work, my friend, and all your, your, you know, the people that you serve and your family and your community and the, the science that you, that you do. We need more like you. Uh, it stinks that you're rare, right? That you you're a unicorn out there. I know there's others, and I know that you support and work with many of them. But uh, just wanted to thank you for for all that you do. And uh, you know, I'm optimistic with more people like you teaching other people and sharing this information that we will, in fact, come come up to a better place. Thank, thank you, Ben. Thank you for all the healing that you do. Thank you for doing your podcast and bringing everything forward. Um, I I try to make it I try to make it simple. Um, there are some complex things that we do talk about. Um, but in that I'm also, I, I'm, I hate to say it, I'm a world-class educator. So mm. when you know, I feel like I'm boasting, but I am a world-class <laughs> educator. Um, an example of this is in my immunology class, I had 107 students take immunology from the public. They're not enrolled in mm -hmm. college. They're just taking it to know. And so I said, how the hell am I going to do this? How, what mm -hmm. am I going to do? And my first five lectures were just the cast of characters, the players, the cytokines, the cells, the signaling molecules. Um, and, and then I said, listen, just sit back. I said to all 107 people, sit back, listen to the first five lectures. You're not going to understand a word of it. Just mm -hmm. take it in. All right. And what we're going to do is we're going to try to break new brown in your brain. We're going to lay some framework. Mm -hmm. Then I'm going to give you a, sum, a summary lecture on lecture five or six. Then you're going to go back through and watch all five lectures again. Mm. And it's going to click. Mm. I did it. They did it. And they, they, they told me, Oh my gosh, I understand it. I said, great. Now I have a population of 107 people that mm. I can talk about immunology with, and they're not going to say, slow down. Mm. <laughs> so, mm. so part of this, my own selfish motive here is that I like <laughs> to be understood. Right? So <laughs> I'm really happy to have been part of your experience here in your podcast. I'm yeah. eternally grateful um, let, I'd love to have you on, on breaking science sometime sure, and talk about what the heck chiropractic is <laughs> doing to make people better these days. There we go. Well, I'll have to do the same thing that you do. I'll have to just say, okay, if much of what I'm going to say is not going to make sense, but eventually after I review it with you, you say, oh, now it clicks. All right. Makes sense now. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Well, Doc, it's been enjoyable. Thankfully, and I think is a testament to you, I'm, I'm leaving this conversation with more understanding and more clarity not more confusion. And I think that is a testament to your work and your teaching. So uh, follow, follow my friend. He's on Twitter. He's on other properties. Go to his, his uh, sub stack, his IPAC and uh, all of those things. Get engaged, start reading articles, asking questions, sharing his work, subscribing to his, his protocols and just, just getting engaged. Uh, it's, you know, even with everything that went on these last few years, many people got so fed up and so frustrated. We kind of disengaged and that is a problem. We need to stay engaged. We just need to stay engaged in the right ways. And so hopefully that this has encouraged you that there is good scientists out there trying to do the right work the right way and bringing us with them. So appreciate you, Dr. Jack. And uh, we'll talk soon, my friend. Thanks so much, Bob. All right, take care. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to support the show, give us a five-star review and share it with your tribe. To learn more about Dr. Ben's work, visit AchieveWellness.clinic.